Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining in. Um, I see we have a few attendees joining in right now. We'll give it a couple of uh, minutes, a minute, for everyone to settle in, and we'll start in a minute. Once again, hello everyone. Um, I would like to welcome all of you to Kaizen's uh, Clinical Oncology Summit 2023. This is the part two, um, hosted by Kaizen Digital Insights. Uh, my name is Iman Bhattacharya. I'm Senior Global Product Marketing Manager in Kaizen, and I will be your host today. So this is the legal disclaimer. Um, Kaizen products are shown here are intended for molecular biology applications. And these products are not intended for diagnosis, prevention, or treatment of a disease. For up-to-date licensing information, please take a look into our website and um, product-specific um, user manuals. All right, so Clinical Oncology Summit is a two-part event. Today is the part two, of the, which is the last part of the Clinical Oncology Summit. Part one was on April 27th, where our Kaijin experts discussed trips and tricks to improve the accuracy and efficiency of reporting variants from large and comprehensive genomic panel, which included um, how to simplify secondary analysis in few steps, generating oncologist-ready clinical reports from comprehensive cancer panel within minutes. And we also talked about a high-quality somatic alteration database as a clinical validation tool for somatic interpretations. The recording of the on-demand session for the part one is available um, already in the TV Kaijin sites. Please use the same registration link to listen to the sessions. Um, before we go ahead, we have a few housekeeping items to remind you that this is a discussion-only event. Um, and for today's discussions, all attendees will be in a listen-only mode to avoid any background noise during the discussions. In case you accidentally get kicked out of the webinar, please rejoin using the same link and do the same if you are unable to listen or if there is any glitch. As for this particular ON24 platform, you will see several windows. There's a slide window on the left side where our presentations will be showing. There's a media player window that will show the webcam of the presenter or the panelist. You can enlarge it or maximize it by dragging, by dragging and drop it. There is also an ask questions or the Q&A box in this platform. If you have any questions during the presentation is going on, please let us know. We will try to answer your questions uh, in the end of the webinar. You will also see several possibilities to open the other windows at the bottom of your screen. They will open up when you click and disappear when you click again. Just play with it. And as we get started today to go with the theme, we would like to know from you that in your opinion, what do you see as main challenge or challenges in analyzing and interpreting cancer genomics data? I will launch a quick poll right now for a few seconds. Um, please feel free to take the poll and then we'll go ahead with that. 
as you are checking the poll, let's go ahead with the session. Um, the theme of this oncology summit is analyze with precision and interpret with confidence. And we would like to proclaim that how our oncology content can help you and hopefully make you work in analyzing and interpreting large and comprehensive genomic panels accurately and efficiently with confidence. We have the recognized global leader in bioinformatics and clinical bioinformatics space. We have delivered over 3 million clinical patient cases, and we have over 90,000 plus users globally. And in terms of what really enabled us um, to become the number one here is the approach we are calling augmented molecular intelligence. The reality of that is there is a lot of hype these days, what you know about AI and machine learning and NLP, curating and building the knowledge. But in the heart of everything, what we do is about delivering trusted data that people can be confident in making decisions, no matter whether it is at the research level, in the clinical, or in the data scientist level. And the key is that we start looking at a lot of hype about AI and et cetera about quality. Here in Kaijin, we use machine learning and NLP to rapidly identify information. And with the help of scientist experts, we focus in leveraging the to review, validate, and augment the information into a high quality knowledge base that can be trusted to make accurate and confident decisions. In today's session, our panelists will delve into how augmented molecular intelligence can responsibly help in accurate interpretations and understanding the cancer genomic profiling. And that will be especially where we'll be focusing in current challenges around the context of um, large and comprehensive genomic analysis and how to improve your existing pipeline for somatic mutation analysis, interpretations, and reporting. The moderator for this session is Dr. Cheryl Elkin. Dr. Elkin is a scientific, a chief scientific officer at the NF1, which is a Kaijin company. An early member of NF1 team, she has laid the interpretations of thousands of patient cases establish a rigorous process for the analysis of scientific and evidence and presentations of molecular clinical evidence to physicians to help guide and therapeutic decision. Dr. Elkin has taken a lead role in development of the NF1 clinical interpretations methodology to support clinicians in identifying therapeutic strategies specific to each patient. She has completed her postdoctoral fellowship at the MIT Center of Cancer Research, where she has earned a fellowship from Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. She has earned her doctoral in doctorate degree in biological and biomedical sciences from Harvard Medical School. With that, I will hand it over, hand it over to Cheryl to the session ahead and introduce our guest panelist. Cheryl, if you could hear me, please go ahead. Thank you very much, Iman, and um, welcome to everyone and um, to our panelists today. Um, so I thought uh, we would start out just by um, allowing the panelists to introduce themselves, tell us a little bit about where they're from, where they're, um, what they're working on, and um, a little bit about where, you know, background where they're coming from. So um, just in terms of who I see first on my screen, I see uh, Dr. Sarah Murray, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Sarah Murray. I'm at um, University of California, San Diego. I'm Director of Medical Genetics and Genomics. Um, I currently oversee um, constitutional slash inherited disease genomics and cytogenetics and cytogenomics, but um, I have a long, many, many years of overseeing um, 
clinical genomics and oncology well. Just been a recent transition where I, I'm actually no longer doing that, but um, still actively involved and have had many years um, doing that. Thank you. And um, Dr. Elizabeth Forrester. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Forrester, and I am a founder and uh, serve as the technical director at Athena Esoterics, and we're a small independent laboratory located in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, we primarily focus on um, advanced molecular detection. Uh, our two areas of expertise are infectious disease and also uh, cancer diagnostics. And um, we are, like I said, a relatively new laboratory. My background is in molecular genetics and um, I have a PhD in cancer biology. And so um, I've been in this field for a pretty long time. Great, thank you. And Dr. Kristen Champion. Yes, hi everyone. Uh, my name is Kristen Champion. Uh, I currently serve as the uh, scientific director of molecular oncology for Quest Diagnostics, working out of our Louisville, Texas laboratory. Uh, Louisville is just outside of Dallas, Texas. Um, I'm a boarded clinical molecular geneticist by training. I started off my career in the inherited disorder space um, before transitioning to molecular oncology about 10 years ago now. Um, so my laboratory is a, a major reference laboratory. Uh, we serve many different types of clients from hospital-based to community oncologists and pathologists. And we also offer a, a broad menu of molecular oncology assays from single gene tests to small panels, mid-sized panels, and now large panels. Um, and we offer that in both the solid tumor uh, space as well as the hematological malignancies. And uh, Dr. Martina Lefterova. Hi, I'm Martina Lefterova. I'm uh, the uh, laboratory director of Guarded Health. My um, background is uh, in uh, molecular pathology. I'm board certified in molecular pathology and clinical pathology, and um, I also have a PhD in molecular biology. Um, I also started uh, my career in the uh, inherited space uh, with uh, whole exome um, uh, testing uh, uh, almost 10 years ago now and have transitioned uh, more in the oncology space. Um, Garden Health is a large uh, uh, reference laboratory. We have uh, a global footprint. Uh, our tests are, um, our highest volume tests are uh, uh, liquid biopsy tests. Uh, and we really offer um, tests across the continuum of uh, uh, cancer uh, care. So, uh, so um, that includes um, tests for therapy selection and longitudinal monitoring in the advanced cancer space, uh, minimal residual disease uh, detection in early stage disease, and also uh, uh, we have recently launched a, a test for uh, screening for colorectal cancer in, a, in average risk uh, uh, individuals. Um, our, our panels are uh, um, all fairly large, uh, and we're increasingly at adding uh, epigenomic uh, uh, content uh, to our panels in addition to the genomic content where variant interpretation is, is really important. Um, and uh, in addition to our liquid biopsy tests, we also have uh, uh, somewhat recently launched a, a, a large tissue panel, so we have experience in that area as well. And thank you very much for uh, uh, inviting me to participate in this forum. I'm very happy to be part of this discussion. 
Great. Thank you all so much. It's it's great to have such a variety of different, you know, large and small and and um, different different areas that you're working in. So I wanted to start with one of the one of the um, developing areas over the last number of years as next gen sequencing has gotten um, cheaper, easier, but also bigger. Um, a lot of groups going from small panels to much, much larger panels and comprehensive cancer profiling panels. And I'd love to ask, you know, have you adopted such a panel? Um, what and what are the challenges that that you've encountered as you develop these these bigger panels as opposed to the smaller ones? Um, and maybe start with Kristen. Sure, Cheryl. Um, yeah, so my experience in this area is quite fresh. Um, my situation is uh, one of our sister labs within Quest went live with um, a large comprehensive cancer panel last year, and we are uh, about to launch that same panel um, in our lab uh, later this summer. So um, definitely that is my life right now, <laughs> uh, dealing with uh, bringing a, a large comprehensive panel live. Um, and so first off, there's a lot of different challenges to consider and navigate. Um, and I think these will be unique and different for laboratories, depending on their size and their experience and their resources. Um, but as a lab that, you know, has a fairly extensive experience in small and medium sized panels, then moving, you know, to a larger panel, that's kind of where, where we're coming from. Um, but one of the biggest challenges that we initially faced you know, after we, you know, got our, our large sequencers was in um, upgrading our IT infrastructure, you know, to handle the massive data files that these larger sequencers generate um, and just completing those upgrades, you know, before we could even run our first run on our big sequencer, you know, it took quite a bit longer than we sort of anticipated. Part of that was some supply chain issues, which may be kind of unique to the times, but you know, it, it did take a while before we were, you know, essentially ready to run. Um, and so that was kind of the first hurdle that we faced. Um, and another big challenge that I think is pretty universal among laboratories is navigating um, the cost to perform the test um, and getting that in line with what can be expected in terms of reimbursement. Um, the payer landscape is certainly extremely challenging to navigate for a variety of reasons. Um, different payers have different policies. Um, Pre-offs can be required and need to be managed. You know, denials are common. Reimbursement or amounts may or may not cover your cost of testing. There can be restrictions on what's even reimbursed. And um, with some payers, you know, there's um, a heavy administrative burden that labs have to navigate. So it can really be challenging on the re reimbursement side of things. I think that's one of the major challenges. Um, another one is the competitive landscape can be quite challenging as, you know, there's academic labs, there's private companies and everything in between. So what's challenging for a private company may not be this, the same experience as what an academic lab may have to deal with, especially in terms of what I just talked about, which is cost alignment with, with reimbursement. Um, another another challenge can be, you know, just the technical challenges um, in terms of um, getting the workflow optimal, especially if you're doing an RNA workflow, that can be challenging in terms of managing your, your sample failure rates and getting that to an, an acceptable level. Um, and then 
there's not a whole lot that's available in the way of technical guidelines. Um, so a lot of it is just kind of uh, figuring out um, based on, you know, prior experience or talking to colleagues, you know, what are best practices there? Um, so I would say there's many challenges, but I, those are the ones that are, I think are the biggest in terms of, of our experience. I would, um, and feel free, go ahead, Sarah, feel free well, to I jump would, in. Okay, I, would, I would echo um, and agree. We. Um, we had we've many shared similar challenges um, here at UCSD. We are, you know, relatively small academic medical center, so our patient base, our customers, are our patients at UCSD. Um, we have in oncology, we have two um, panels. We have a large um, was an in-house 400 gene solid tumor panel. We actually recently transitioned to um, Illumina's TSO 500. Um, oops, my lights just went out in my office. Um, and um, the second panel we have is a smaller 125-ish gene panel for heme malignancies. Um, we started out big. We didn't grow up, you know, we didn't transition. We just kind of <laughs> started with our 400 gene panels, so that was a little challenging. Um, but being at an academic medical center, our oncologists like data. You know, they're comfortable with it, um, so it's a little bit of a different environment than perhaps someone who's customer base may be more community-based oncologists. Um, but where we do run into challenges is, of course, um, competing on cost. Um, you know, our overhead is high. Our batch sizes are not such that we can necessarily gain lots of efficiencies. We run, you know, at least once a week, often multiple times a week. Um, so our advantage, I would say, is you know turnaround time is is good, and I think the biggest advantage on top of that is just the personal relationships that we have with the oncologist. Um, and you know, we're seeing lots of different testing modalities on the same patients, and our labs are all in, right next to each other. We share samples, we talk, we discuss, and so I think it's a different um, type of setting in that respect. Um, Probably one of our biggest challenges, though, is um, what um, Kristen did mention is reimbursement. Um, that still remains to be very challenging. And the larger your panels get does not mean you get more money. In fact, it's almost the <laughs> inverse of that. Um, you do too much and it, you, know, you don't get paid for that. It really comes down to what is established clinical utility. Um, and that still is quite challenging, I will say. Certainly is established in some areas, but broadly across every patient sample you get in, it may not be the case. Yeah, I can jump in after Sarah, because I feel like we're a little bit of, we're just an anomaly all the way around, I feel like with our laboratory. We um, pretty much function like we are part of an academic kind of, you know, medical institute, except we are by ourselves. And, and that's mostly due to just kind of Chattanooga itself. So it's really an interesting location. We're kind of sandwiched in between Nashville and Atlanta and Birmingham. And so Chattanooga in and of itself doesn't have um, a medical school. And so we lack, um, our physicians kind of lack access to, you know, all of what comes with being part of, you know, an Emory or Vanderbilt or, you know, a, you know, UC San Diego kind of place. So we're trying to kind of fill that role a little bit. And so um, we, 
you know, we just listened to our clinicians and, and what they were asking for. And we went with a 505 gene panel right away. And so I think one of the most difficult things that we had to do was actually decide, you know, what would best fit our community. And, um, and then once we kind of figured that out, uh, we were on to validation. I think our hurdles were very similar to, to most uh, folks. It's for us, it's really the cost. So everyone that works in our laboratory is um, PhD and pretty much has had experience in academia. Um, and so we were able to transition pretty quickly, you know, those folks to, to kind of working in the clinical setting um, in terms of the um, thought process that would have to go along with some of this interpretation. Um, the cost and the reimbursement landscape are by far the kind of the biggest hurdles for us that we have to continue to work through. Um, I feel like it changes every day with every payer. And, um, and so that's, um, I think as Kristen kind of alluded to before, it's almost like you need a whole different team of folks um, to kind of help deal with those issues, you know, outside of the technical aspects of the, of the panel. Um, but yeah, that's kind of been our experience so far. Martina, I feel like you come from a different uh, perspective, and I'd love to hear what yeah. you, what you think about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think our our experience is sort of the polar opposite of what Elizabeth was just describing. So, uh, our laboratory is is focused on large panels. Uh, we um, just in terms of defining what we mean by that, I, I see there's a question in the Q and A uh, regarding that. So, um, our biggest uh, highest volume product is actually a, a 74 uh, gene panel um, uh, for therapy selection. Uh, we have FDA approval for, for that panel. And um, the advantages, of, and, and then on the other side, our larger panels uh, for therapy selection are uh, uh, on 500 genes and, and, and over. Uh, and we're, as I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, starting to add um, epigenomic content as well uh, uh, to improve sensitivity uh, for, for detection in, in early stage, but also to uh, allow detection of uh, novel biomarkers. So um, in terms of advantages of the smaller panel, which is our 74 gene panel, um, obviously uh, the uh, cost is, uh, of, of, of the test um, for the laboratory uh, is lower because uh, you, you, you know, for liquid biopsy, we have to sequence uh, uh, very deeply, and so uh, smaller panel uh, uh, means small, smaller cost. Um, but the, I think the main advantage for our patients is actually the turnaround time, uh, because we're able to produce results uh, in five to seven days for the majority of, of uh, our patients there. Um, I think the the advantage, uh, another advantage of a smaller panel is obviously that uh, it it has uh, you know you you can the level of evidence uh, for the genes and variants that are reported is is always higher because the the selection of genes is based on um, uh, 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 content that has already uh, uh, demonstrated clinical uh, utility. So. Um, on the flip side of that, the larger panels, what, what we uh, struggle with is is primarily around uh, um, demonstrating that uh, uh, clinical utility and, and also uh, generating the clinical evidence for, for validity. So as you can imagine, if, if for a liquid biopsy, 
laboratory um, or for a liquid biopsy test, uh, uh, obtaining um, uh, samples that uh, allow uh, uh, clinical validation can be challenging. Uh, because uh, for novel biomarkers, a, a lot of the uh, initial characterization of these novel biomarkers happens uh, with tissue. And so uh, having that those samples with uh, associated clinical information can be uh, uh, quite a challenge. And that's where um, we have invested uh, very heavily in relationships with uh, academic partners and um, consortia and, 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 and biopharma uh, in order to uh, be able to have access to these types of uh, uh, samples and, and, and cohorts for uh, clinical validation. Uh, and I, I would absolutely echo what was mentioned previously around reimbursement. Uh, uh, I think Elizabeth made, made a really good point that you almost need uh, uh, to have a a team that that deals with that explicitly, and um, you know that's that's certainly an advantage for for an, um, a, an entity of, like ours that we can um, uh, have such a dedicated team. And even with that, it is it is extremely challenging um, because demonstrating uh, clinical utility uh, is incre is increasingly uh, expected, but not always possible given the novelty of some uh, some of the biomarkers that. Um, uh, that, that we are um, starting to report on. Yeah, and I, I wonder also, are you, are you pushed, what, what are the big advantages of doing a larger panel? So we talked about the challenges, but what, what are you, so if, if there's a smaller amount of um, number of genes that give you real clinical utility in terms of the patient being able to identify a drug, what what do you see as the gains from the larger panels? I think for us, uh, there are two two. I think I would say there are two answers. One is that the clinicians we work with are increasingly going in that direction. They're asking for that additional content, even if they're not quite certain how how to interpret it from from clinical actionability perspective. But there certainly seems to be a desire. Uh, on the on the physician side for for that additional content, and then from a laboratory from a test development perspective, I think there's uh, that the, the idea of future proofing is actually quite powerful. That you know having that additional content that would allow you to quickly validate and implement new biomarkers without having to completely alter your panel um, is is really valuable and something that. Uh, we see as, a, as an advantage. I'll just echo what Martina said about the future proofing of panels. We still perform a lot of, of small and medium sized panels, but with the rapid pace of biomarker discovery, you know, we do have to constantly keep updating those panels. So that idea of moving to a larger backbone with many, many genes, it gets you to hopefully a point where you won't have to update those panels, you know, technically as much and you can just uncover genes on your smaller panels as they become relevant um, because we do still have many clients that want those smaller disease focused panels but managing all of those workflows can be challenging so it is appealing to put all of that on a single larger platform even if you're not offering you know the whole panel you can still you know capture laboratory efficiencies by running that all off of the same backbone and Maybe you want to report TMB status or MSI, and 
you can do that if you're sequencing a large backbone. I agree. I think that's probably one of the bigger advantages of a larger panel is um, is the ability to report on TMB. You really need probably at least four to 500 plus genes on a panel to be able to do that well. Um, the other area where I see it is very helpful is in CNV calling. Um, we typically don't report single copy gains and losses, but certainly focal amplifications and homozygous losses um, of, of you know, key tumor suppressor genes, for example, um, when you have a larger backbone to kind of help set what normal diploid should look like, um, it becomes much more accurate. Um, and so that's another advantage, a technical advantage I see for more accurately being able to call other different types of variation in addition to SNVs and indels, et cetera. Yeah, I'll, I'll just kind of agree with everything that's been put out there so far. You know, for us, again, as a smaller laboratory, um, you know, considering bringing on several smaller panels versus one larger panel, um, for us, it just made a lot more sense, um, considering that it seems to, this seems to be what our clinicians were asking for. And um, again, it's, you know, I don't think that they necessarily are saying that they know what to do with all of the information, but I think wanting to capture it and have access to it, um, I think was really important um, for, for, our, for our community anyway. Thank you. I saw there was a and question then, well, around um, small biopsies and working with those. I just wanted to interject sure, our experience there. And it definitely is a problem. Um, the smaller amplicon-based panels work so well with small biopsies. And so that can be a challenge moving to a larger panel um, the input requirements are higher. They may not work as well on those small biopsies. So some labs take the strategy of uh, kind of triaging the samples uh, based on the amount of, of tumor, the tissue that's, that may be there and may have a different workflow to accommodate those small biopsies because it definitely is a challenge that deserves some consideration. Thank you for jumping on that. <laughs> I think um, I, I, I so our, maybe I just could add a slightly different perspective. So, you know, our approach has been somewhat different from that where we, we have a single platform to the points that were made earlier around the advantage of having a, a single test. So what we actually invest in is um, de developing the assay workflow uh, upfront to be able to um, handle smaller inputs and, and validating that during our validation process. Uh, and then of course, you know, there are certain, certain um, specimen types that uh, deserve special, special attention like cytology uh, specimens or, 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 various, uh, or FNAs. And so for those, we, uh, we will often perform dedicated um, validation activities in order to be able to understand the performance of the test. Um, so thinking about sort of what comes next after these large panels, there's lots of excitement around exomes and genomes. And I'm wondering um, what you think about, you know, if, if it makes sense to go to a 500 gene panel backbone, what about an exome? What about, what about the genome? What do you see as prohibitive there or what do you see as an advantage? Um, uh, and I, maybe Sarah, if you want to start since... Sure. Yeah, um, I, I think, well, personally, I don't think we're there yet um, in the 
oncology um, application area. Certainly in the constitutional world, it's you know becoming much more um, standard of care in certain certain circumstances. Um, in oncology, I think it's still challenging. Um, you need to sequence to much higher depth of coverage, and so. Um, it does substantially add to your sequencing costs. And at this point, I don't see a huge advantage um, of that extra cost in terms of it's, it's uh, a lot more, you know, computation, a lot more variants to look through um, as opposed to constitutional genetics where you're, it's more of a diagnostic, you're looking for things and you have kind of correlating with phenotype, et cetera. It's not like it's trivial, it's actually not, but it's um, a bit more of a different approach of how you would be looking at the data. In an oncology somatic mutation, uh, you're still limited to how clinically useful it's gonna be either a therapeutic or a diagnostic type of marker. Um, you're still at the mercy of what is known. Um, so it is a lot more data to sift through at a much higher cost. That being said, not to repeat myself, but I am going to repeat myself. Um, you know, the more you go out and even whole genomes, you know, copy number looks beautiful. And I'm wearing my cytogeneticist hat right now. Um, but, you know, it looks as good or even better than a microarray, quite honestly. Um, and so that also can, certain tumor types, certainly that um, can be a huge advantage. Um, we see that particularly in brain tumors. Um, correlating mutation with copy number events. Um, but so there, there could be a future for it, but I'd say right now, um, I, I think mostly cost is gonna be the, the biggest limitation. Um, you're never gonna get reimbursed <laughs> more for doing an exome. And so you're just taking that on yourself, um, eating all that additional cost and a, a, a tough thing for most labs to handle right now, I would say. Yeah. Other thoughts are you are those of you who are, if you're working with clients, do you feel like people are pushing you? Are are clinicians pushing in that direction at all? And not you know? not really. I, no, I think, I'm not at request for it. Yeah, I I don't I don't I don't think so. Uh, I think there's actually quite a, we're seeing quite a bit of hesitation on the clinician side, at least in, in the work that we've done. Um, in terms of being able to interpret the findings of a of a whole uh, exome, um, I, I I would agree with everything that Sarah said with regards to copy number variation. I think there's an advantage there um, that we see, in particular for for gene deletions um, that are much more challenging uh, uh, of than, than amplifications, and so that that higher coverage really allows. Um, computationally more accurate detection of, of deletions. I think the 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 uh, the challenges um, uh, around demonstrating actionability are, are definitely amplified, as you can imagine, in a whole exome relative to uh, to a, a large panel. Uh, and you know the challenges of interpreting these large numbers of VUSs, both on the laboratory side and also on the on the clinician side. Um, and you know, for in, in the in the in the um, context of liquid biopsy, actually, whole exomes are at the moment prohibitively expensive in terms of uh, operating the test because of the uh, high um, uh, depth of sequencing that is required. 
And I, I would agree. Uh, I know we see whole exome, whole genome being pretty broadly adopted in, in the germline space. I think the case there uh, is, is more um, convincing in that, you know, a, a patient may undergo a sequencing panel once in a lifetime. And it's, it's not the case in the somatic world. You may sequence a tumor or a patient's cancer, you know, many times in, in the treatment cycle. So you can't make the same case for, you know, the, the bang for the buck value that you might get um, in germline sequencing. And, and so I do think that the, the comprehensive cancer panels, the larger panels that we're starting to perform now are, are meeting the, the clinical need in terms of identifying therapeutic targets and providing the prognostic information to manage a patient's uh, cancer journey. Um, and so I, I think there may be some indications out there now for whole exome sequencing, maybe MRD, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Yeah, I, I really would agree with everything that's already been said. We haven't had any, you know, clinicians asking for larger than a 505 gene panel. And, you know, and I think as a clinical laboratory, you know, what we have to do is really just focus on, you know, providing tests that are, you know, clinically relevant. And so I think, you know, up until this point, the conversation was, is 505 genes too large? You know, so thinking yeah. about going to, you know, um, whole genome is above and beyond, I think, what would be supported, you know, from the reimbursement landscape, and then also clearly the additional costs associated with sequencing and then the interpretation. So at this point, um, yeah, it's not even a consideration in our laboratory. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because the when you're t the, the indications are so different too between oncology and germline where when you're looking at um, constitutional testing, hereditary testing, you're looking for something that's going to be inherited by someone else. You, you might be on a diagnostic odyssey where you're trying to find what could possibly be causing this condition, whereas cancer, it's, you know, so even in a 500 gene panel, a lot of those, you don't know <laughs> what what you would do with them if you found them. So expanding to 22,000 genes, I, I'm in agreement with you <laughs> that it doesn't seem particularly uh, relevant right now. But um, you hear a lot about it, so I wanted to, to expose that question. Um, so I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about what do you do with all this data once you have it? So the large comprehensive panels in particular create large numbers of variants, as you're saying, large numbers of VUSs. Um, how do you go, how do these panels impact your interpretation? How do you, what do you, how do you manage these variants? And maybe Elizabeth could start. Sure. Uh, this was actually a, a pretty hot topic of debate um, in our laboratory after we decided to validate a large panel. Um, we have a really unique kind of set of oncologists around us. Uh, we have some oncologists that, you know, are in, from a couple of practices that are um, really, you know, kind of on top of the literature. And they made it clear that they really just wanted the information and they didn't really care for a 44 page report that interpreted everything for them. And, you know, I think they felt like they had, um, they have a kind of their own molecular tumor board, you know, inside of their practice. And they felt like they were confident enough to figure it out. On the other hand, we are, um, again, you know, we have some pretty rural, um, smaller, you know, oncology practices around. And the conversation there was, 
if you just hand us this list of genes, then we really don't know what to do with those all the time. So, so we were kind of going back and forth about what we needed to do. And, you know, we ended on, uh, yeah, we needed some sort of clinical support um, software. We just felt really strongly that, you know, with support, if they didn't want the information, they didn't have to read it. But for those clinicians that wanted it, we felt like it was really important to, to provide that interpretation. Um, you know, for us, you know, dealing with 505 genes, we felt really that we needed, um, you know, to, to manage the time constraints. Um, having QCI was really, really, you know, a big part of our being able to adopt this test confidently. Um, and so uh, it allows us to, you know, we still spend a lot of time and go through case by case, but it allows us to focus more on understanding some of the information, focusing on where there may be um, particular discrepancies. Um, and uh, again, it just um, has really helped, you know, our turnaround time, I would say. I would echo what, what Elizabeth described in terms of managing different clinician expectations and needs. Like she said, you know, some of them really just want to know what the variants are. And then many of them, you know, really need to be spoon fed the information. And what we've heard from our clinicians over and over again was that they don't want to read past the first page of our 10 or 20 page report. So if it's important, it needs to be top line on the first page. And so we've gotten that message loud and clear. So really you need to be very organized in how you're reporting. You need to have those clinically actionable tier one variants front and center so they can't be missed anyway at all if possible. And you need to describe very clearly what the actionable what the actionability of those variants is. What does that mean for the management of the patient? What, what treatments and another area to consider is how do, how do the variants interact with one another to change what that treatment recommendation might mean. So for a lung case, if you have an EGFR variant, but you also find a med amplification, that changes what kind of therapy rec recommendations you would list on the report. So I think having a, a clinical support software to help you manage all of that and keep up to date with all of the clinical guidelines the approved therapies, the clinical trials, if you're reporting those, is just, it, it's extremely important so that you are not, you're not missing something that's important to call out on a report. Yep, I agree. We, very similar uh, experience here. Um, most of our oncologists are quite savvy. Um, they just want to know what the mutations are. Um, but not all of them are, and you know, and so we they do go on and on. But you got to get everything that's um, the most important information very concise and on page one, <laughs> and um, you know, refer to page two through you know twenty if you want to dive deeper on any particular gene or variant or you know trial or whatever it is. But you need to have all the salient, um, you know. The, tier classifications, whether therapies are available and all of the, those in, interactions, et cetera, all need to be on page one. Yeah, yeah I, I would second uh, everything that was uh, mentioned so far. So our um, our uh, approach is to rely heavily on the AMP uh, levels of evidence in terms of determining what is reportable and what goes on that first page. And we actually work very, very closely with our partners at, at uh, Kajan at N of One 
anytime that we are considering uh, uh, starting to report on a new gene or a new biomarker to gain alignment as to what the clinical annotations would look like. Um, our reports, our therapy selection uh, tests have a fairly uh, standard approach in terms of uh, annotating variants with uh, um, therapies that are either that are FDA approved either in that indication or another indication, uh, as well as with clinical trials. Uh, and, and of course, uh, we also annotate variants that may have um, uh, um, um, that may be incidental findings with regards to uh, uh, predisposition to cancer syndromes uh, and, and for some select genes. Um, it's, I, I, would, I see some of the, the questions in the chat regarding how are oncologists using non-actionable genes and variants, and I think that really varies uh, uh, across uh, practices. I think the, some of the, the we, we work with a wide range of providers, uh, both academic providers who are very savvy in this field and, and uh, don't heavily rely on our annotations, but also with uh, community practice physicians, providers in, in, uh, outside of the US. Um, and I think in those settings, uh, a, a lot more support may be needed in some circumstances. So we uh, uh, provide a lot of detail um, uh, outside of that first page uh, in, in different file formats that are available to the physicians if they choose to look for additional information. Um, and then sort of related to that, um, you know, there, there are the well-known variants and there are, you know, variants that you can, that are VUSs obviously. And then there are lots of other kinds of variants that are becoming interesting um, in the literature, synonymous variants where, you know, typically you would think, oh, it doesn't change the protein, therefore it may not have any impact. Um, but clearly those do affect, in some cases, splicing and um, enhancers and things like that, um, deeply intronic or even intergenic variants. What are you doing? Are you, are you keeping those on your, on your radar? Like, how are you addressing those kinds of questions about these other types of variants? Um, I can take that jump in. So um, certainly it is on our radar, um, mostly in the context of synonymous variants that may impact splicing. Um, we typically don't, I mean, typically synonymous variants are filtered out with the exception if they're known variant that um, do impact splicing. So it's a bit selective. Um, in general, non-coding variants are, you know, challenging to incorporate broadly for us right now, because um, there's certainly much less knowledge in terms of how it really impacts function for most of them broadly. Those that do have you know, publications or known um, promoter mutations, known deep intronic mutations, known splice mutations, you know, P53 is a good example of one, this um, splice mutation where, uh, synonymous variant that is a splice mutation. Um, those we bring back, we have them, you know, we have them on a list that we know we bring back, and it's a dynamic list. Um, so it, it is a lookup to a variety of databases, but um, um, but it is a difficult class of variation to implement broadly because a lot is still not known um, 
a small a small amount actually is known in that class, I would say. We, we actually take a somewhat different approach. We, we report all, all the synonymous variants that we identify um, in, a, in a section of the report that just lists them out. Uh, of course, any that have um, uh, impact on splicing get um, elevated to that uh, 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 higher level uh, of annotation. Uh, I do want to mention also some of the um, intronic variants that, that Cheryl uh, uh, brought up. Uh, one, one area where we've seen that um, be very impactful is in the context of uh, met exon 14 skipping. Uh, and we have had, uh, uh, since we started reporting met exon 14 skipping variants, we have had to do some uh, refinement on our definition of uh, what the splice site is and how, how uh, uh, deeply into the intron to look for uh, variants with uh, potential or, or documented impact on um, the, the, the um, splicing out of exon 14. Um, and then I guess another context of, for uh, keeping uh, uh, an eye out on intergen intergenic content is in, the in, is in the context of structural variants. Uh, certainly um, uh, there are some um, uh, types of variants like um, uh, uh, structural variants in uh, BRCA1, 1, 2, and other uh, HRD-related genes where loss of function uh, is, is important. And so we are uh, looking at intergenic content in, in that context, uh, as well as for actionable fusions, novel actionable fusions. I think this is definitely an area where technical guidelines would be very helpful in terms of what best practices might be, because I think there is a wide variation in how laboratories are handling the reporting of, of um, intronic variants and, and synonymous variants. And it's probably, I would say, our clinician colleagues may not understand very well how a laboratory may be doing this, because it may not be explicitly spelled out in their methods or the technical language may be difficult to understand. So this is an area where practice varies widely. You know, you have everything from a lab that may hard filter and not report anything to a laboratory, you know, that, that Martina described that may report all of them and kind of everything in between. So uh, definitely an area where, um, you know, some, some more standard practice, you know, could be needed eventually, I think. And I think how you report them also makes a big difference because if you report them as these are synonymous mutations, we don't know what they're doing. It's one thing. If you report them in the context of everything else, it's a different thing. So, you know, the, the responsibility of, of how much weight you give to those variants is very important based on um, what they are. And I think the Exxon 14 example is such an interesting one because that one is so well known. And so we kind of call it promiscuous. It's like almost any alteration at that site will result in an Exxon 14 skip. But you can have like a plus three or minus three, you know, uh, single nucleotide change in another intron that's a well known benign variant. So it's hard to extend to other very similar variants in different genes because they just don't behave the same way. I want to address a question that I'm seeing in the uh, uh, QA box regarding uh, yeah. uh, loss of function fusion. So 
Uh, I think it really uh, depends on the context, right? Uh, if the if the gene is one where uh, a loss loss of function variants uh, have clinical implication, uh, we 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 try to um, uh, target a detection of such rearrangements. So, uh, the, for example, uh, the BRCA1 and 2 genes where uh, uh, large uh, uh, deletions of multiple exons uh, can be associated with a second hit um, uh, in the context of uh, uh, certain uh, cancer types. Uh, on the other hand, of course, they're activating fusions, uh, um, uh, genes that, that are known to be uh, associated with acti activating fusions like uh, ALK or RET, uh, in lung cancer, and there it's really important uh, to uh, uh, be able to assess uh, a, a rearrangement uh, in, in terms of whether the uh, kinase domain is preserved. Um, so uh, our our detection of fusions is through uh, a DNA approach, so we don't see the RNA product, and, and uh, we really have to determine that the uh, product of the rearrangement uh, is one where the, the uh, kinase domain is preserved uh, in order to be able to annotate it with um, uh, uh, the respective therapies for activating fusions. We actually, on the liquid biopsy side, have a, an interesting uh, edge case that maybe is not as, as, a, uh, as much of an issue on the tissue side. Uh, and that relates to the fact that in some cases, um, we don't see the activating um, fusion, but we may only see uh, the reciprocal product, right? The, the um, uh, other part, the other um, side of the rearrangement. Uh, and it, in those cases, uh, there is a, a, a real challenge in terms of interpretation and annotation because uh, that that reciprocal rearrangement suggests that there's also another one that is likely to be activating, but because we don't see it, uh, we can't really uh, provide annotations uh, that would be uh, appropriate for an activating fusion. And so in those cases, we actually try to alert our physicians um, with, that, that we're detecting this reciprocal event and uh, to suggest considering other uh, testing modalities if there's high clinical suspicion for the presence of an activating fusion. Yeah, those are tricky for sure. <laughs> other comments? Um, okay, so another, just sort of switching gears a little bit um, we've got representatives on this panel that are doing solid tumors and represent and and some doing liquid biopsy. And I wonder what do you, what are the trends that you see around liquid biopsies? What are some of the benefits that you get and the challenges? Um, and I'll I'll ask Martina first because that's one of the major things the garden does. But I'd love to hear from everyone about what what are you looking at in terms of of liquid biopsy. Um, and advantages and disadvantages. Yeah, go ahead. I think one of, the, one of the main advantages of liquid biopsy that we've seen over the years is uh, the turnaround time and uh, the, the cleanness of the specimen, right? Because um, we're, we're, we're dealing with a consistent quality of, uh, of the specimen um, uh, and we're able to take that through uh, our workflow very efficiently. 
Um, and as I mentioned earlier, we are able to generate results in five to seven days from our smaller panel. Um, I, I think that's much that's quite challenging with tissue, especially FFP tissue, where uh, uh, procurement uh, can be problematic. The oncologist is ordering the test, but the specimen actually resides in a pathology laboratory, so obtaining it could take some amount of time, and then um, uh, uh, all of the steps that are necessary to process uh, an FFP sample and uh, enter the NGS workflow. Uh, also uh, contribute to a, a longer turnaround time. Uh, the another advantage that we 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 have uh, uh, observed over the years for liquid biopsy is that especially for uh, advanced cancer patients uh, who are who have already progressed or who are failing multiple rounds of therapy, uh, uh, obtaining. Uh, tissue specimens from multiple uh, metastatic sites uh, becomes very challenging. These patients are often very sick. They're, um, uh, like, I, like I said, they have multiple metastatic sites, so sampling uh, all of them uh, is, is not really uh, clinically feasible. Um, and so what liquid biopsy allows us to do is actually to get a, a, a snapshot of, the, of, all, of all of these sites um, provided they, they're shedding their tumor DNA in the, in the blood, but um, it, it gives us uh, the ability to test non-invasively, and I think that's very powerful for, for patients in this uh, uh, clinical setting. Challenges, uh, uh, I, I just mentioned one of the major ones, tumor shedding, right? Like not, not all tumors are going to shed uh, uh, DNA in the blood, and so the sensitivity of liquid biopsy uh, uh, is to some degree impacted by that. Uh, but I think what we're finding is that the uh, combination of uh, liquid biopsy and, and tissue testing uh, is, is where uh, uh, we can provide the, the biggest gain uh, for the patients um, because the turnaround time for liquid biopsy is helpful. And then if there are any gaps, tissue can, uh, uh, can supplement those. I would agree with Martina. I think um, we are seeing uptake and adoption of performing um, of, uh, liquid biopsy testing because it is very complementary to the tissue testing. Certainly hasn't replaced tissue testing, but there are definitely applications out there where liquid biopsy testing is appropriate. It's made its way into many of the professional guidelines. So we definitely see you know, a clinical place for it. In terms of where it's performed, it, right now it seems to be more of a, of a niche market in terms of laboratories that are um, performing liquid biopsy testing. And I think this is because some of the unique technical challenges that go along with performing liquid biopsies. Um, certainly analytical validation can be challenging in terms of uh, specimen sourcing. So there's some unique challenges that I think is kind of why we're seeing it be performed mainly in private companies, but adoption definitely is growing for liquid biopsies. I, I agree with Kristen. Um, our oncologists here certainly use it, but they send out um, to Garden or Tempest or you know others. Um, we, my colleague um, has interest in bringing this in-house um, maybe in the next year or so, it'd be a smaller focused panel um, we don't run it currently, and I agree, it's it's a lot of challenges of bringing these um, in in-house. 
Yeah, I, I can echo everything um, said. We do not currently offer. Um, it has been discussed, and it's something, you know, for all the, the reasons that Martina mentioned, um, all of the advantages. Uh, for us, again, um, you know, validation is something that is, you know, kind of front and center. And if we do, it will be a much smaller um, panel. And maybe one last thing I would add, uh, which it, it, we, from physician perspective and patient perspective, seems to be very impactful, is that um, given the, the short turnaround time and the, the, the uh, um, absence of a requirement for, for sample procurement and delays associated with that, um, what we see is that in some contexts, patients are able to get on targeted therapy faster um, um, because of the liquid biopsy test results that their their physicians are able to obtain. So, um, it, you know, we're very, very happy to see that um, uh, liquid biopsy is making its way into guidelines and adoption is increasing because we do believe that the, there is a, a value to the patient. Um, yeah. I, it's great. Um, the next, getting as we're getting toward the end of our conversation, I wanted to sh shift a little bit to um, what do you see on the horizon, and how do you keep up with the trends that are out there? There's, you know, if you go to ASCO, there's lots of hot new topics and um, new technologies and new um, types of variants. And how do you how do you stay on top of it? And how do you decide what kinds of things you want to incorporate into your testing? Anyone? <laughs> All right, I'll take that one. Uh, I mean, I'll add our, our clients, our clinician partners do a very good job of, of uh, letting us know what they need, what they want next. Um, especially after they attend ASCO every year. So we definitely hear from them. Uh, so I think that's probably the main source is just managing all of the um, feedback that we get from our clinicians about what they would like to see. That definitely that definitely keeps us busy. Um, but we definitely react to changes in professional guidelines. We keep very close tabs on those. So if a new gene makes its way into a guideline, that certainly gets our attention. Or if the gene is downgraded, you know, we react to that. So. Um, I would say those are probably the two main sources where uh, we, that we use to keep up with what's what's in demand clinically. I, yes, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, we yeah. sit on a couple of tumor boards, and so that's really helpful. Um, you know, kind of continuing and being part of those conversations and. And yes, the clinicians will let us know exactly what they think that um, you know we need to, to know, or they would like to see, or um, and then also the professional guidelines. You know, CAP is really fantastic about you know pushing that information out. Um, it's ever changing sometimes, and um, so those are agreed. Those are two of the probably the biggest areas um, that we tend to listen to. Yep, I we do the same. Um, I would say it's it comes from our customers, which are our clinicians. Um, we always have to weigh, you know, the request versus the first the clinical utility, the expected volume, um, what reimbursement may look like. I mean, because everyone has a lot of ideas, and it's great. You want to support it all. I mean, I would love to be able to do everything that I get asked, but um, you know, you have to prioritize. And so those are kind of the ways that we do prioritize. 
Um, and sometimes it's even just a technology change um, that makes things more cost effective or more accurate or you know whatever it may be, um, or adding features to data you already have. Um, once you know you get more data and you can add you know for example copy number variant calling or whatever it may be, um, MSI, TMB, et cetera, things that you may not have initially had but you can add in later. Um, we've done that over the years. Um, but primarily it is, it's keeping up with um, important content from papers that come out, from guidelines, from professional um, recommendations of the, that sort, and then weighing it with how feasibly we can actually implement it and it doesn't make sense for us to implement. Yeah, I, I would uh, agree. Uh, certainly the voice of the physician is really powerful in uh, the decisions of what we add to the panel, uh, we have maybe a, a, an additional unique um, uh, consideration here, which is uh, our partnerships with uh, um, pharma or, or other entities. Uh, and um, through those partnerships, we sometimes have a, a glimpse to uh, emerging biomarkers. And uh, uh, so we, we uh, take that into account when we build our uh, uh, new panels, and uh, over time, uh, we leverage these partnerships in order to be able to do some of the validations that are needed in order to to uh, implement a new um, uh, a new biomarker. Um, in terms of specifics, uh, what we are, what types of biomarkers uh, we're we're uh, uh, looking to uh, implement in the future? Certainly, uh, HRD has uh, had a prominent. Um, place in, in, in uh, patient management in recent years. So we're looking at novel ways in which we can report uh, both on the liquid biopsy side and also um, on the tissue side uh, uh, for HRD variants. Uh, uh, I mentioned earlier that we are very interested in, in epigenomics. So um, that's maybe a little less uh, impactful in, uh, in the therapy selection, uh, on the therapy selection side, but certainly uh, on uh, 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 longitudinal monitoring to uh, therapy and as well as uh, minimal residual disease detection, um, the potential is is very high because of the improved sensitivity uh, from uh, epigenomic panels, particularly uh, in, in, in the cell-free uh, DNA space. Um, and um, uh, uh, you know, certainly there we're very interested in in um, uh, novel ways of looking at existing biomarkers. So uh, microsatellite instability, we've implemented that, and as well as TMB uh, on our liquid panels. Um, HRD, we're also looking at promoter methylation um, and, and uh, uh, other uh, emerging biomarkers. Great. Um, so if you had any advice to, or thinking about how how we make these large panels and all of this information more accessible to more people, what would you suggest to get it out there, to get the information out to community oncologists who may not be doing molecular testing or who are doing smaller amounts? Like, what, If you have any suggestions for laboratories that are getting started or, or anything, what, what advice would you give or what would you suggest for the field? That's a big question, but. 
I, I think I would, I would suggest um, uh, leveraging guidelines, and that includes both laboratory guidelines but also oncology guidelines. Uh, one of the disturbing things that we've found over the years is that in spite of uh, NCCN guidelines um, uh, indicating that a certain numbers of genes should be tested for a diagnosis uh, in order to uh, uh, assess eligibility for targeted therapies. Um, even though these genes are in guidelines, uh, not all patients get tested for these genes and biomarkers. And so I think when we uh, develop uh, new panels as laboratorians, it's really important to ensure that we, we do incorporate those guideline recommended genes and variants and biomarkers, um, that we do have a, a, an eye out on emerging biomarkers and assess our ability to future-proof the panels that we uh, create. And also to push, again, as laboratorians, to push for uh, our own guidelines uh, to have consistency on, on uh, how things are reported. That, that point was already made a couple of times during the, this discussion, but um, uh, I think uh, uh, it, it would help our physicians, customers, and our patients also to have a, a standardization across uh, reporting requirements. I would say that probably one of the most disheartening things that we see in the field is the fact that the percentage of patients that are actually getting the minimal set of biomarker testing that's you know recommended by guidelines is not anywhere near where we want it to be. I think we have a lot of improvement in that area and just to try to understand you know why that is, what are the driving factors that are, are causing patients who could benefit from these, this testing to, to not get it. And I think there's there's several reasons. I think one of the main ones is, is reimbursement. I think there's a lot of in area, there's a lot of room for improvement in, in reimbursement that would go a long way in terms of allowing more laboratories to offer this testing so that more patients have access to it um, and, and it, allow it to be performed in a, a more economical manner. And, for laboratories to get reimbursed, um, you know, for the the work that they do, um, you know, so that we can, you know, eventually get to the point where the majority of patients that could benefit from this testing are, are actually getting the testing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think trying to understand, um, like Kristen was saying, what are the what are the factors, and I think that changes with each community. You know, each community is unique, and so. For us, um, you know, what we had to do was kind of listen to our clinicians, and a big thing was just they wanted act, they wanted the turnaround time to be decreased, and they I think they wanted access more access to a laboratory that was performing the test and and have more of a of a connection there. And so I'm not saying that you know we do, definitely do not run every you know biomarker test in our area. But um, there's a couple of clinicians that we've built relationships with, and I think that for those, it was really important. And I, I do think that that helped, you know, just increasing the access um, overall. And so um, it is complicated, and the reimbursement is, is very real. You know, asking small kind of more communities, so to speak, laboratories to take this on, it's, um, it is a challenge, you know. And so... Um, I, I don't know that there's anything that a laboratory can do to change that reimbursement landscape. I think it's something that just is, you know, kind of changing um, 
over time. I know there's a lot of local legislators in our area that have, you know, begin to mandate um, coverage. And, and, you know, certainly that's helpful, but that's, you know, kind of down the road. Um, but yeah, I think understanding the factors is, is really key. And it's difficult because it's not the same for each, you know, each community. Um, not for the faint-hearted to take this on. <laughs> um, it's you know it's it's pricey. It's a large investment, um, and it doesn't get reimbursed well. And so that's that's a tough sell for most um, most health centers, most you know um, laboratories. So I think you really have to bring the value because um, it's really, really tough to compete with the larger vendors um, because they have economies of scale. They have, you know, they have a lot more resources that the smaller labs like us do not have. So you wear a lot of hats um, and um, but the value you bring is, as what we've said earlier, many of us is, you know, the connection to the physicians um, and the turnaround time and you know the most of the a lot of the oncologists who order i talk to them all the time um and i will always accommodate any kind of requests that i can um in terms of you know prioritizing or it's not really the suboptimal sample can you try anyway you know those are the things that we will always do um, because we have those relationships and we sit on all the tumor boards so we're very integrated in the care of the patients that's what you bring to the table. Um, outside of that, it's a tough sell. Um, so it's expensive, <laughs> not to be so negative, but it's the reality. So. Um, well, I wanna thank you all for such a great discussion. Um, this has been really interesting and fun. Um, I wanna hand it back to Ema. I know that you all were monitoring the Q&A uh, very uh, closely, so we may have covered most of the questions. I don't know, Iman, if there are other questions that we haven't right, covered. Right, right, right. So I think we did most of the questions, and thank you, Urban, for the questions. I think this particular question goes to Dr. Chaffian. Um, someone mentioned that uh, the challenges around data storage and implementations of IT support. What are some of the solutions that laboratories can adopt in terms of on-cloud or on-premise data storage, and what has been uh, the experience in the field, if you want to comment on that. Yeah, I would say the most important advice that I could give is to have a good bioinformatician or bioinformatics team if you have the luxury to have your own team because they are extremely um, invaluable in advising you on those sorts of things because that's an area that um, many of us clinical people don't have a, a very good understanding of necessarily. Um, I, from what I've seen, I think everything really is moving to the cloud. And so your organization really needs to consider what that means in terms of, you know, IT security and, and what kind of product you would be comfortable investing in because um, on-prem I think is, is only manageable for a certain amount of time before the data is just so much that it really needs to move to a cloud-based system. So uh, you may start out not using the cloud, but eventually you'll probably need to go there. Thank you. Um, I don't know if anyone has any other comment on this one. Okay. And I think Dr. Lecturer kind of uh, touched upon this question, but still I want to just uh, take it up. 
how are oncologists using non-actionable genes today? Essentially, we often hear larger panels are on trend, but oncologists provide treatment based on actionable genes. So really, what, are, what, what is driving the demand for larger panels? If anyone want to take it out. <laughs> I think um, where we are, um, it's um, certainly you have your well-established genes that you know a lot of the guidelines are built around, but often you can still find other tier two level genes that might be informative um, diagnostically, prognostically, um, and they just be maybe newer um, and. So, and sometimes, you know, it, you, it's, you, you think you see, you know, it's, you're going to just get these same mutations and you get, you know, all kinds of um, unexpected things. I mean, Mother Nature keeps you, keeps you hopping and keeps you on your toes. And so I think um, the appeal of having a larger panel is you capture more of that. How it really changes things clinically, I, I can't answer. I would think that it probably does help on some, some level. Um, but I think that is the crux of where we are with is what is the utility of these larger panels um, clinically. Um, certainly on an academic interest level, I think a lot of you know oncologists who are more minded that way, like all of the data, like all of the mutations, everything that they're seeing. Um, and so it, it is a difficult thing to answer exactly how much more utility you're getting from doing 500 genes versus very focused 30 genes for any given particular tumor type. Um, perspective we have is we've always just run large panels. And so um, I, I, I don't really quite know how to answer how it would compare to something more focused. Um, the downside of it, of course, is it's tougher reimbursement, which is a common theme, which is pretty much every topic we've talked about, we've brought that up. <laughs> um, and then the other is, you know, managing all of those VUSs that you get. So certainly as you expand your list, you get more VUSs as well. Thanks. Thanks for the such detailed answer. Um, well, I would just add, that... I'm not a panelist, ahead, yeah. but I, I do no, want to, no, sorry, yeah. <laughs> I do want to insert my, my, my opinion here is that it's, really important to distinguish the, the uh, mutations that are known from the ones that are unknown. And hopefully the physicians have an understanding of what a variant of unknown significance really is, um, because it's basically, you know, you don't know what it's doing. And so it could be relevant, it might not be relevant. I think actually with the bigger panels in some ways, when you get these long lists of EUS, that that they are less tempting to go after than a smaller panel with one or two VUSs and not so many actionable genes. So I don't know, it's a, it's a mix, but it yeah, it's definitely challenging. Great, thanks Cheryl for, for jumping in. Uh, we are probably in the last part of our discussion today and I will launch a quick poll for you to take um, just for 10, five, 10 seconds. And, while we're taking the poll, if I could ask the speakers, including you, Cheryl, like one last question to kind of summarize today's discussions. I mean, in you, in one word, in your opinion, what do you think the future holds? Like, not necessarily one word. You could give me a few words, but yeah. And starting from um, maybe Dr. Forrester. 
Wow, that's, um, let me think one word. What does the future hold? <laughs> Hopefully better reimbursement. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, you know, I come from, um, from like a, the, like a research academia side of, of cancer biology. And so um, it's really, it's been pretty um, remarkable. Every once in a while, I'll kind of sit back and think, oh my gosh, like this is all coming to fruition. You know, all of these experiments and all of this, you know, this day that we dreamed of, of being able to diagnose patients not based on, you know, you have breast cancer, or you have lung cancer. It, it really is. So the solid tumor panel that we're running is is so much closer to that than than anything that I probably could have imagined, you know, when I had started my my dissertation work. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I hope that um, we're I mean, you know, more targeted therapies. I mean, to be able to, you know, see this 505 gene panel, these variants of unknown significance, to think that you know one day they will have significance, and um, so that's that, that's definitely not one word, but that's all I can think about is you know we're one step closer to this idea of all of these variants playing a role in the treatment of these patients. Thank you. That's that's great. I mean, suddenly hoping for like more than one word. Go ahead <laughs> if anyone want to jump in this. Thanks. I, yeah, I just want to echo that. My thoughts were rapid innovation. I mean, we're just really living in an exciting time in terms of the pace of discovery and um, how fast, you know, these discoveries are making it into clinical practice. I mean, it, it really is quite extraordinary. So it's just, it's very exciting times for our field. Okay, thank you. Yep, I agree. And um, I, I'm hopeful. Um, I think it's um, only going to increase um, not decrease. And so I think this is a very exciting time to be in this field. Absolutely. Cheryl, do you want to jump in? My word is knowledge. I think there's, there's so much that we still have to learn, but so much that we have learned over the past two decades. And the thinking about where we were, two, you know, two decades ago with maybe like one or two genes to, to look at. And now with you know, 50 or 100 genes that all have targeted therapies that you can apply. It's it's incredible, the, the explosion of information. And it's also overwhelming to try to manage that information and communicate it to physicians in a way that they can use it effectively and, and rapidly. So I think that's that's the challenge, but it's it's incredible what's happened in this field. Thank you, thank you. And Dr. Letrova um, had to go because um, she had she had somewhere to go. So I think what I am really I, I really got that is that we are really hopeful for the future, um, targeted therapy, rapid innovations, and and knowledge, more knowledge. So with that, I really want to thank all of you, um, Dr. Champion, Dr. Forrester, Dr. Murray, Dr. Elkin, and Dr. Letrova for joining us and uh, for your invaluable inputs. I just want to remind the audience today um, that if you like today's sessions and if you want to know more about our solutions and if you want to like uh, have, know about our demo or any trial, let us know. Uh, we have a very specific session we are hosting for Kaijin Clinical Insights for Oncology on Thursday, June 22nd. Um, and the speakers will be our Global Product Manager for Oncology, Dr. Uma Chirumurthy. She will discuss how to scale your comprehensive genomic profiling workflow with superior automated variant interpretation. So please look for an email invitation for 
registration. And um, once again, thank you to the, all the audience and thank you everyone who sort of helped us to put together this event. And with that, I want to say thank you and goodbye, everyone. See you in the next session. Take care. Bye. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.